You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with Ross Burdorf, who is the CEO at Zen Business. They're a company that democratizes entrepreneurship by making it easy to create, maintain, and manage an LLC or other corporate entity. He mentions that they have over 140,000 customers. That's new businesses they've helped create and help stay in business. They have raised more than 70 million in capital. He personally has more than 30 years as an entrepreneur, technology leader, C-level executive, angel investor, and board member. It's really neat to hear his perspective coming from the dot-com boom and bust through multiple technology businesses. One of his big successes was when he was founding chief technical office for HomeAway, which does vacation rentals. They took that company public. They bought, I think, two dozen companies along the way, and then they sold it to Expedia for nearly $4 billion, quite a success story. But rather than just hanging up his awards and kicking back, he's gotten back in the arena and he has been building Zen business and helping other people start and build businesses, really inspiring. We discuss the importance of small businesses and the growth of freelancing. We talk about building a great culture, even when employees are working remotely. We talk about disruption and what does that actually mean for incumbents and what can they do about it? He's had experience on both sides of that issue. We talk about how to do successful acquisitions and listen to how he tells us how fear is a liar. I think you'll enjoy it. Stay tuned. Ross, welcome to Startups for Good. Wonderful to have you. Well, it's great to be here. I'm excited. As a place to start, I'd love to know what lessons did you take from the dot-com boom and bust into being an entrepreneur these days? Well, I will tell you, the big one, I think, was in the initial dot-com boom and bust was, you know, there was this pursuit of what they called eyeballs. So we just need to get the customers and we'll figure out how to monetize them uh, later on. And, you know, I think we're seeing a little bit of that resurgence right now, but the, the biggest learning I caught out of that is if it, if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is too good to be true. And that, you know, fundamentally you need a profitable or at least a vision of a profitable business and, you know, need to have your unit economics and, and be delivering value uh, to your customers. So delivering value, positive union economics, these are basic economic principles. How has it informed your approach as a mission-driven company? You know, I get this question a lot. It's from a, a mission, you know, we're a public benefits corporation. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I'm also very involved in conscious capitalism, which started down here in Austin. Um, you know, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, who, who said they, they had to be mutually exclusive? You know, the CEO roundtable said that there's more important things than just uh, return 
to your shareholders. I absolutely <laughs> love venture capitalists, love investors. That's my whole career has been based on it. I love making money. There's no shortage of, of money. And I don't believe that they're exclusive. I think that actually being a company that adds benefit and value beyond just a shareholder value to the world is good for business. And, um, you know, consumers in this day and age are more and more curious and in, in many cases demanding that, you know, you not just be a, a bloodthirsty capitalist, but you, you also do good in the world because more and more companies are being uh, given the consumer that choice. Do you see this sort of worldview with your customers? You've helped incorporate oh, 100,000 businesses. So what do heck you Heck yes. I mean, more than 100,000. Uh, and, and the answer is heck yes. I mean, you know, we have a grant program. We had a, a grant program that came out in COVID. We're, we're re-rolling that out here in the future in short order. And part of what we're doing is, you know, we want to give back not only to our customer base in the fact that, you know, we help support them get formed. We do that at the most cost effective. We are the best price, the best product, the best solution for our customers. We aggregate all of the solutions for our customers so we can get better prices for them with uh, buying power. All of this is you know, uh, absolutely aligns with our customers. And I think that's the, the trick with public benefits corps. I mean, a lot of them, you know, have green initiatives. We certainly do also, but, you know, fundamentally we're here to make our customers successful. The more we make our customers successful, the more they make us successful. So it's this virtuous cycle. Do you incorporate public benefit corps? And if so, what percentage of your customers? Yeah, we are? do. We don't. Public benefit corps, you know, are a very small share of them, and they're you know more you know complicated. So we don't we don't do those. We are very focused at what we call the solopreneur, the micro business, you know, the long tail of the SMB market. These are the folks that are starting their businesses in their spare room or at their kitchen table. And, you know, it's mostly LLCs, uh, C-Corps, S-Corp elections are, are what we do. We do DBAs on, on, on top of that also, but not public benefits corps. We, it's on our list to do as part of what we uh, support. On the product roadmap. Yeah. So for someone who is thinking about starting a business, how should they think about risk? Like what is the risk of starting a business? Well, you know, I think it's a double-edged sword. I, you know, you're in the startup business yourself. And I think as a startup and all of the companies that come to us and form, they're startups, they're entrepreneurs. There's just no, nothing difference between Austin or Silicon Valley or, RTP or Boston, any of the, the tech hubs, Atlanta, there's no difference between tech startups and a, and a, you know, a individual startup. The thing that you have, or one of the things that you have as an entrepreneur is risk. It's, it's a currency. And so, you know, you can't be conservative as a, a startup. You need to be somewhat risk averse, make sure you've got your bases covered, but, you know, part of this, going out on your own and most of our customers say the lion's share start out their businesses as side hustles which is a great way to 
defer risk is, hey, let's see if I can get this thing going while I keep my regular job or this becomes part-time along with a, another part-time thing to, to defer risk. So, I mean, I think risk is something you have to embrace. My view is always make sure, give you an example, classic one is when the pandemic hit, you know, it scared the socks off of everybody. It scared the socks off of us. Kind of the first thing we did was, okay, how do we manage risk here? So we went back and we said, wow, you know, we don't want to lay anybody off. We didn't lay anybody off. Uh, you know, let's make sure we've got all our bases covered. And we cut expenses, you know, cut marketing expense and what we were doing for PPC and, and some of the other product investments and we were covered, right? So, Hey, we've got this thing covered for the next 12 to 18 months. Then once we had our bases covered from this position of strength, then we got aggressive. Okay. Is this an opportunity? What can we do? We started up a grant program was one of the ways we could do to help, you know, and then literally I would say six weeks later after the kind of pandemic hit in March, you know, the business just came roaring back and we were in a great position to capitalize on that. So I think I'm from the Midwest. I have a conservative point of view is make sure you got your bases covered with risk. But then once you've got your bases covered and you feel like you've got the operating capital to go, then you should really jump in and take on as much risk as possible because that's where the reward is as a, as a small business. And I think you have a really interesting viewpoint on the ability of startups and smaller businesses to take risk once they've got those fundamentals covered. They yeah. can take risks in ways that the larger companies and the incumbents can't or won't. Can't. I mean, <laughs> I was on the other side of this. I mean, it takes, uh, you know, you can count on one hand the companies that have been incumbents that have pivoted. And the, the reason is, is that they have to pivot against their own business. Netflix, of course, is the, the famous one and probably the most famous one. And I think it's, it's an exception, not the rule. I'll give you our example at HomeAway. I mean, I was the founding CTO at HomeAway. We, we created, we were the unicorn that created the vacation rental market. And then this little company out of your town, uh, San Francisco came along, Airbnb and disrupted us. Well, the, because we we're all good managers, because we had created this fabulous business that created the vacation rental market, you know, we were here to manage that thing to success. And, you know, Airbnb came along, didn't have anything to lose, had nothing but risk to spend. And so they could disrupt us and they disrupted us, you know, in a segment that, you know, we weren't, that was underserved and, this would be the city segment, the urban segment. We were in all the vacation rental spots, and it's still that way today. It's hard to compete with the disruptor. And now I'm on the other side of it, which is very enjoyable. I'm disrupting the incumbents in the industry and, you know, their structure, their financing structure, their debt structure, you know, non-VC based, um, you know, you're in the VC business. You're, what you have to do is take calculated risks and, that's where the big growth is. And how have the incumbents reacted? Well, I mean, you know, as the disruptor, I don't pay a lot of attention to them. I keep my eye 
on them and see what what we can learn from them. But you know, primarily as a disruptor, <laughs> you're uh, you know hell bent on disrupting the industry and adding value to your customers. So we're just completely focused on that. And you know, I would say their reactions are usually a year to if at best six months behind us. And by the time they've implemented, if they can implemented our innovation, we've moved on. So it's just very, very difficult. And again, I was on the other side of this. It's very difficult to uh, respond to classic Christensen disruptions. And I think you're referring there to particularly his book, Innovator's Dilemma, which I recommend if people haven't read it. It is, it is a classic. Absolutely. You know, he recently passed away. We should read all of his writings. It's fabulous stuff. He even wrote a guide to living your life and having right. a meaningful life, which was yeah. actually a pretty good book. I'm curious about trends in formation. So you're, you know, you've talked about COVID and recent like roaring back of business formation. How are we doing historically in the U.S. Uh, in small business formation? We have seen phenomenal growth. It's, uh, let me get a statistic here. We are beating the historical averages. It's 30 plus percent growth. If you look at the government statistics, we're seeing uh, actually above that in uh, growth on formation. So it's at an all time high. And I think it's a trend that we saw that we identified prior to COVID, we've been around for four plus years, this predates COVID. We saw this trend of more and more folks going into freelancing. It's, you know, here to say there was a recent uh, survey from Upworks where folks, Upworks is a freelancing product and community, and they did a recent survey and it said 60% of them said, hey, you know, I'm a freelancer. I wouldn't go back to my regular corporate job for any amount of money, you know, because I love the the freedom I get with freelancing. So this trend is something that, or this black swan event of the pandemic has really just accelerated a trend that was already happening. So more and more folks are forming their businesses. One, I think it's either out of economic necessity, which we've seen that uh, from our surveys, or out of, you know, hey, I can work anywhere. This gives me the the freedom to, you know, work across the globe. And the companies I work for are accepting of that. So I think it's just this opportunity that that one of the positives that's come out of the pandemic. So freelancing has been on the rise. And with the more recent federal tax legislation a couple of years ago, S-Corps are really more beneficial. But have there really been a growth in small, medium-sized businesses that are employing other people? Well, if you look at it, the majority of small businesses, and, and you can just go to the SBA for all of these statistics, but the majority of small businesses or micro-businesses are solopreneur businesses. So it's a single-member LLC are the lion's share of the businesses that we form. Now, we do see businesses, you know, you know, five to 10, we've even got, we've got some much bigger businesses, but the majority of businesses that are being formed are these, you know, this long tail, and these are solopreneur businesses. 
Now, the small SMB segment is classified from the government is 499 or less employees. So that's what's considered small businesses. But here again, the lion's share are single member LLCs, but they're employing a single individual. Right. So I don't know. I answered your question. That's a lot of people that are being employed, but they're employing them themselves. And these businesses get to be bigger and then they employ more and more people. You know, we also see the majority of ours are service businesses. And that is, again, is the the government statistics support that also is, you know, the majority of the U.S. economy and global economy are service-based businesses or, you know, people working for other people. And I don't know about you, but it's, it seems like I've got more people working in my house than now than before the pandemic. Maybe it's because I'm here and I'm having them fix stuff that I notice. So <laughs> it, it seems like the service industry is on the rise and everyone that I had my garage door fixed the other day and finally the garage door opener finally went bad and the guy came in here and he said, man, I've never been busier in my life than uh, right now. So. Oh, that's interesting. I think the importance to the economy of small businesses that are getting to that stage of hiring employees is really key. I read some Kauffman Foundation reports that show that's where all of the job growth in our economy comes from. That's great. Is that correct? Is that your impression as well? Well, I think you can read the statistics and it is, it's, it's hard to, I mean, if you dig deep, it's hard to compete with the big mega corporations. I mean, Amazon, Google, those companies uh, employ a lot of folks. The U S government employs a lot of folks. So when you talk about new employee growth, of course, it's going to be out of this small business segment by necessity, because that's where, and we're seeing it uh, right now, that's all the, with all the formations, more and more people are employing themselves, either be with a, a side hustle or, you know, expanding their business by hiring other people. So yeah, I'd agree with that statement. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the numbers for Zen Business yourself uh, in terms of number of customers, employees, anything else you can share? Yeah, we're over 200 plus employees. Uh, we have went completely virtual. So we have folks working for us on the West Coast, the East Coast, the Midwest, uh, you know, all over the, the U.S. The majority of us are in Austin, but it's become irrelevant now. We have folks working for us in Central America. Peru is a big area where we do some of our operational work and have developers in Costa Rica, Colombia, also in Peru. So all over the globe, 200 plus. As far as business and customers, over 140,000 customers, uh, we've just had fantastic growth uh, before the pandemic. And, and as I said, it's been accelerated with the growth in uh, formations that the entire industry has seen. And you've raised what, over $70 million? Yeah, combined over $70 million. The last round was a, a $55 million round led by Cafe Innovation. They led uh, Chimes B round, another you know breakout. Wonderful. And has it been easier to raise money over time as you show more success in the business? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> it has. I will tell you, we raised this round. You saw a little chuckle there. 
it's been in hindsight, you can always kind of, uh, you know, have a better perspective after going through it. We raised, we closed around in November. So, you know, we started raising and it was a preemptive. We didn't really start raising. It was a preemptive round. So we had incoming interest, you know, I would say in the summer of last year. And then we started talking to, to folks. It's, it's always a lot of work to, to raise around because as my wife says to me, when I complain about, Oh my God, all the questions I have to answer. And this is like, she said, how big's the check there? Right. And they get to answer, ask any questions they want. And so, you know, uh, and it's a, it's a fair statement. What was weird about the round. And I think this was confirmed by other folk. I've never met these people, you know, in person, you know, we've never shaken hands to, to date. And, you know, they're on my, my board. Now, of course, my previous board, I've all met in, in person. So whereas I think it's easier to raise around when people get to meet you and they come to the office and they get a, you know, a cultural vibe and they see all the people and they get to interact with you in a, a personal way, I think that makes a huge difference. And I think it's, it's actually, I think we're more social beings than we'd like to admit. And so uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, I know I certainly think that some of it is, is relevant, but you know, those experiences you have that you are either, you know, conscious and unconscious, I think they make a difference. And so when you're on the video, it's very sterile and it's very much about the numbers and, and, you know, very much about, you know, execution, et cetera, et cetera, which we had great numbers. And so that was okay in raising the money. But I do think it's, I think that there were a lot of people that didn't get funded because they didn't have great numbers that would have gotten funded if it would have been a, a more personal experience. So, you know, so take that for what it's That's interesting. It, it's it's yeah. worth. So it was a lot. It was more people were more interested in show me the numbers, show me the metrics, blah 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 blah, you know. And so it was uh, very much that which w- we did great. Don't just listen, get engaged. You've heard me talking about the Startups for Good Giving Circle and maybe you're wondering how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation, let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are U.S. tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. I'm curious about something you said, you said preemptive, and I just want to underscore that for our listeners who might be earlier stage entrepreneurs. That means people were calling you wanting to give you money, which may be a new experience for some founders. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it is part of my philosophy of, you know, if you just <laughs> do a good job, show up at work, consistently execute on you know, your, your plans, I always say, respond, don't react 
to what's going on in the the business, then uh, you know, and and if you're in a, you know, you're blessed to be in a good market that's growing, um, then you know, good things will will happen. The same thing is happening right now. Uh, we just raised in November. We don't need to raise. We have lots of capital on the the balance sheet, and we have lots of cash coming through the front door, and we're getting preemptive interest right now. How do you think about that and evaluate that as a CEO? Do you ever worry that if you don't take that money, it goes to your competitor? Do you worry of taking too much, too little? What are you thinking about in that decision? Well, I mean, I think our next round would be the B B round we just got through is a growth round. And uh, we're putting that money to great use and seeing great results, beating our numbers. You know, the next round will be a, a C round and it will be a, a big, the biggest round to date. And I do think there's, you know, I do believe, although Austin is, you know, that, I mean, we've got all of your former neighbors moving here to Austin now, you know, Austin's no longer seen as this sleepy town. I've been here for 30 plus years of, you know, keep Austin weird, which certainly uh, it's still a weird place. Just you can put that out there, and and that's what we love about it. But you know, I very much am of the Silicon Valley myth of you know the most capital wins. So I believe it's important to you know we're all smart folks. Some of us have more experience than than others, but we all hire from the same schools and have kind of the same networks. As a colleague of mine, Bill Gurley says, as you know, you you have a fundamental investment philosophy is I'm going to give the best horse the most money. And so our next round is to be get the most money. Gotcha. So making sure that you really have the money to continue growing. And I imagine mm-hmm. continuing to do acquisitions as well. Acquisitions and and you know, also product. I mean, you really, it costs a lot of money to build technology-based products and uh, we'll be making, continue to making those in investments and doing acquisitions also. You know, we've done a couple already. We're working on a, a few right now in the platform area to build out our platform, which is a great time to acquire some companies. Some companies have done great in the pandemic. Uh, other ones have struggled. So I think there's some opportunities out there where we can bring, you know, add in technology that our customers, product technology that our customers want, uh, where these other companies haven't had the great success that we've had at acquiring these customers. What advice would you have for other people on how to make uh, acquisitions successfully? <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, my entire career has, has all the way back to Excite.com. You asked me a question about the the first internet, Internet 1.0, and we did lots of acquisitions at Excite.com. That's how we grow. We grew, and at HomeAway, we did you know 25 plus. So I think my first ad- advice is, you know, do some small ones first. It is a great strategy to grow. And as an entrepreneur, you know how difficult it is to grow a business. And there is a, I mean, you know, 
private equity does this on a on a mega scale, right? They buy ongoing concerns and make them better. So there's a whole set of companies that, you know, a company our size can acquire where it's a great exit for those entrepreneurs that started up their those businesses and we can facilitate that that exit and it adds you know a creative product and a creative finances to our business so it's kind of a win-win situation so do some small ones get that have that experience it's very difficult to do acquisitions my team is we're a lot of refugees from from home away uh, we know how to do acquisitions they don't frighten us and we've done some good sized ones already you say they don't frighten you for me i think the thing that scares me about doing acquisitions is the impact on your culture yeah i mean i think that that that's a really a good a good call out i do think you have to have a a resilient culture to begin with and you know the company that is being acquired you know, needs to, will be coming into a culture. If it's resilient and non-brittle, then it'll be a a easier transition and a welcoming transition for the acquired company. So I think that's important. And, and I noticed, you know, on your bio where we are hundred percent transparent, you know, we have fantastic employee NPS that we, take independent. We use independent service on a monthly basis. We, we have a great, I mean, everyone says we have a great culture, but we're a bunch of computer scientists and product people. So we measure it. So, so I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you my culture is good because the employees think it's good. And I do have a belief if, you know, these are, you know, the people we hire uh, can work anywhere. And so we treat them great and they treat each other great and they treat our customers great. And, you know, that leads to a great uh, customer NPS. So I think that all builds on top of, e- uh, of each other. If you've got a crappy culture, an acquisition is not going to fix it. It's just going to make it worse. I like what you're saying there about when employees are happy, they lead to happy customers. Absolutely. I think that's really key business uh, insight. We used to say it, uh, internal service is a necessary foundation for external service. It's a great way to say it. And and I'm the same thing. You're saying the same thing. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we do, you know, we do a Wednesday meeting at the company every, every Wednesday and it's a half hour meeting. So everyone shows up and we talk about the numbers and, and I do a page, the COO goes through the numbers, marketing goes through, you know, what we've done this week. And then there's product and technology and, and, and customer success does a slide and then there's HR. So it goes pretty quick, but in a recent slide, you know, you said your parents met at UT. There's a, uh, I don't know if you read anything from Bernay Brown, but she's got a great quote says, I'm not going to get it wrong, but it says something like I'm only, you know, unless you're out in the the arena with me getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. Right. <laughs> so I like that. So I put that up. Uh, well, that was my slide and had her quote. And then I, 
you know, transitioned in another slide and it said customer, our customer success team is always in the arena, you know, and it's signed Ross Berdorf and, and, and our sales folks too, I, I, I added. And, you know, that's the kind of culture we have. And it's to your point, our number one internal customer is customer success people. If we build a crappy product that they have to support and it causes them stress because they're in the arena, you know, they're dealing with the, the customer. And what we do is complicated in many cases. Folks have lots of starting up a business is scary and risky and they need someone that, that uh, can hold their hand. We did a recent survey of our customers. We said, what's the number one reason you started a business? And they said to change their life, to change the world and to make more money. Uh, that's what our customers are after. I mean, those are noble, emotional, valiant reasons. And then we asked them, do you think that Zen Business can, can help you do that? And 90% of them came back and said, heck yes. We think Zen Business is the company that can help us uh, do that. So I've got a fabulous business. People want to come and change their lives and they think we can help them. And it's because we do help them. Um, what could be better? It's, it's just like my, at, at, uh, home away, what could be a better job, job than having people make money off of their vacation rentals and then other people travel to vacation rentals. I mean, couldn't, couldn't be any better than that. I think Zen business is, you know, changing people's lives, uh, especially for this long tail segment that, uh, many of have been disenfranchised and, and, uh, it's a segment that's underserved. Wow, it's really inspiring to hear about the mission of the company stated so clearly that people want to change their lives, change the world and make more money. And even that last one, which might seem selfish, is often about impacting and changing the lives of their family. And yeah. it's about being a part of this grand mission we're on of improving uh, economic growth for our whole world, which I think has led to so many good things. And I don't think that gets celebrated enough. So no, I'm excited I mean, about what you're doing. Miles, I had an early mentor, a guy named Ed Foreman, uh, who I love and adore. <laughs> and he told me early when I was just out of the university, he said, Ross, there is no lack of money in the world. <laughs> he said, look around you, man. <laughs> he said, how can these, and you know, and this was decades ago when he said this, now it's even more relevant. I mean, look at all of the billionaires and the, you know, concentration of capital. Clearly, there's no lack of money in the world. So there's nothing wrong with uh, money. Everybody should go out and, you know, generate some of them. And, and, and by the way, I'll put a plug in for the United States of America, you know, because I'm a true patriot in this respect. The laws of having a corporate shield are fantastic. I mean, it's the it's the basis of our economy that, hey, I can go out, I can create a business. And if I fail, the debtors and don't come and take my, you know, my living room table and my and my couch and my car. If my business fails, uh, you know, there's still plenty of places where they do that. So this is really the basis of, of our economy. And thank God it exists. Yeah. So the importance of being able to fail, not just to economically, you know, avoid bankruptcy, 
but also avoid the stigma that you also have in some other countries. That's right. I think is a is a wonderful thing. That's right. Man, neither you or I would be here if we hadn't failed. Exactly. Uh, it can be painful. It can be really painful. But that's right. You know, knowing that we have more tolerance for failure in the U.S. And I think it is one of the advantages of Silicon Valley culture. There are some downsides, but one of the advantages is much less stigma around failure, which allows the next innovation to happen. That's right. That's right. If you're, you know, innovation by definition is a failure, you know, the ability to experiment and, uh, you know, create novelty, lots and lots of novelty is just bad ideas. <laughs> but, but that's how you learn not to do that. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, well, you're talking a little bit here about product strategy, but I'm curious if you have any advice for founders who may be coming more from a technical side or technical leadership as you did, as you transition into the CEO role, CEO founder role, what, what would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing more of this, and and we all think we're special, but we are seeing more of this. More CTOs are going into CEO leadership, and early in my career, you did you didn't see that, and I think that's just the evolution of companies are becoming more and more technical, more and more data driven. And I was uh, always have been a product led CTO, although I've got a computer science degree from University of Texas, you know, top top uh, CS school in the country. My advice is, uh, I'll say this, and I tell this to my my CTO who worked with me at HomeAway. I think he's the best CTO in the country. Alex Victoria, a master's degree in computer science from CMU. It is the hardest job at any company is to be the CIO or CTO. It's a brutal job. And the reason is, is you're creating product out of programming languages and plug-in technology. It's a lot easier now than it was when I initially started, but it's the toughest job. The CEO job is way easier. Don't let any CEO give you that line that they got the toughest job. They just don't, they have the most responsibility and they have to make to steer the ship, but that's a heck of a lot easier than uh, what my CTO does or what I did at HomeAway. So that's one piece of advice. The advice I give to every entrepreneur, and I'm writing a book on it, is you just can't fool your customers. You can fool your customers for a little bit, but you can't fool them forever. And so you need to pay very close attention to what your customers are asking for, what they're telling you, and you need to deliver you know, that value. Now, you, you, you have to have vision. I'm not saying give up on vision. But what I am saying is that, you know, you have to follow the truth and, you know, the, your, your customers will tell you what they need and what they want. And uh, you as a, as a product and technology company, then you can deliver that to them. At, and that's where the, the innovation is, is that better prices right now with this, what I call the SaaS renaissance, we curate a lot of solutions for our customers. Everything now is, especially in the small business marketplace, is moving into you know SaaS, whether it be fintech, insurtech, health tech, and us, you know, uh, formation tech. It's all moving online, and it's all more accessible than ever. So I always say, don't lie to yourself, and don't lie to your customers, and always be seeking the the truth. I wake up every morning, and I said. 
what lies am I telling myself? And, you know, what is our customers telling us that we need to go out and respond to? What lies am I telling myself? What a powerful question. You have been known to say that fear is a liar. Yep. I'm curious what you mean by that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in, you know, in a lot of cultures and certainly in, in ours is that we have, I think, a primal fear in that back in the days when tigers were eating us on a regular uh, basis. <laughs> and by the way, do the research on the internet. Tigers still eat a hell of a lot of us. I'm surprised how many people get eaten by tigers in the world still. So that's the only fear is tigers or someone chasing you with a gun or a knife. All those other fears are really just made up in your, in your head. And so you can't make good decisions. You can't make the best decision if you're motivated by fear, fear of failure, fear of what other people think, fear of, do I have the highest valuation? Fear, do I have the most revenue? You know, fear, am I the richest, thinnest, whatever the heck it is that's been handed to you uh, by society or your upbringing? It's just, a, you know, it's just a lie. It's all in your head and it's not useful as an entrepreneur. Inspiring words. Thank you for that. I think we'll wrap up here. Where can people find out more about you or the business online? Well, they can go to uh, zenbusiness.com and they can send me an email, ross at zenbusiness.com. And I answer all my emails. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, it's been delightful. Thank you. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.